Our speaker this morning is our brother Dave Miller. Uh, Dave is the executive director of Apologetics Press, and uh, his formal education includes three master's degrees and a PhD in rhetoric and public address from Southern Illinois University. He's written several books and um, uh, conducts a, a number of seminars that, uh, and a lot of information that I'm kind of skipping over here because of time, uh, but I would invite you to visit the website for Apologetics Press. There's a lot of information, more of this information and, and still more on that website. And I, I want to say I, I've, I first met Brother Dave, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. I was preaching in Oklahoma and he came there to, to uh, help us out with something just before he moved to Alabama to uh, uh, go to work with Apologetic Express. But um, uh, we so appreciate here at Bear Valley having uh, Brother Dave and, and all the other brethren associated with Apologetic Express as part of the work that we're doing here. It's a great partnership, and we're just thrilled to have them. And we're thrilled this morning to have Brother Dave to speak to us. So, Brother, come preach the word. Preach the word. Thank you, Donnie. You know, we AP really, really appreciate the relationship that we have with Bear Valley. And it means so much to us, even if he's not in my lecture. <laughs> what a great work has been done by him. Very grateful for you. Praise God for the good that you're doing. All right, let's jump into this subject. By the way, go to our website, and I believe all this material is on there if you'll just click around and find a little new website. I think maybe even Monday. Uh, if all the bugs are worked out, it's, it's developed and ready to go. It's just a matter of, it's going to be a little more, I think, friendly, especially with uh, videos, kind of what's the direction things are going, so we're trying to make a short video. <laughs> I think that to the younger guys, I'm like, yeah, I don't see anything wrong with our 55 editor. Right. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> all right, let's look at this subject. I'm, uh, I'm astounded. I'm astounded by this subject and how, how God handles it. You know, basically, we're asking the question, can women lead men in worship? That's kind of the, the center of what we're talking about. So, you know, preaching, leading prayer, leading singing. You know, you look at the, the bulk of uh, Christendom, and many of them, you know, have moved in the direction of saying, yeah, what's, what's the problem? You know, I'm old enough to remember when the feminist movement hit our culture hard back in the 60s. How many of you remember the ERA? I've heard recently they're kind of talking about trying to revive that adjust the Constitution and make changes. And so is it not the case that we as Christians are influenced if we're not careful by culture? And we can actually start letting culture dictate to us that we are kind of oddball, odd man out. That's a sexist statement right there, odd man out. Odd woman out. Um, and, and therefore we start kind of imbibing that spirit and I'm seeing churches all over our brotherhood give in on some of this. And I'm, you know what I'm confident that it is? I don't think they intend to be wolves or anything uh, harming the church. I think that they're not studying their Bibles. They're not really Amen. If we don't keep going back and making sure we've got God's thinking that, we're in trouble. We'll be swayed so easily and we'll be gradually shifted. So, even though we're studying Corinthians, and we'll look at 1 Corinthians 11 very briefly here in just a minute, it's clear to me, if you want to get your handle around this subject, you've got to go to 1 Timothy 2. This is the premier New Testament passage uh, that makes it clear 
as to how God abused this. Quickly look at the context. And by the way, I think I have a whole lengthy exegesis of this uh, section on our website. Again, if you just go look and, and see if you need help. All right. Hey, chapter 3, verse 15, I believe, is the thematic statement of the book. Sets the context. How ought you to behave in the church? Notice the word church can mean different things in different contexts. It can refer to strictly the assembly. But in the context of this book, it's a broader uh, church life would be a good way to summarize it. Because it talks about the qualifications of elders. You know, that's not church assembly. So it's church life. And that's the setting. And so when you then come to chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, it's clearly as narrow to be more of a concept of worship in the church. Again, I wouldn't limit it to the assembly. Uh, there would be no reason to do that because there's a principle here that's operative that extends really to all of life. And then <clears throat> notice that he's very clearly uh, distinguishing male and female in this setting. So those are all just immediately on the surface uh, factors that ought to be taken into account. Well, notice the first four verses talk about the fact that uh, prayer ought to be made for all men. If God wants all men to be saved, the mediator between God and men. In my opinion, and I'm not going with gender-neutral translations, but that can be kind of confusing because each occurrence of the word man or men in these passages is the generic uh, Greek word anthropos for just human beings. So all people, you know, maybe how about um, prayers and things ought to be made for everybody, for all people, is the concept. But then, once you move down, beginning in verse 8, now we have a narrowing of what he's talking about. And he uses the standard Hebrew, uh, Hebrew Greek word for uh, a male, an adult male. There are other words for children, in fact, a number of those that specify younger ages. But this would be the term for adult male, which, by the way, has implications about whether a woman can teach a boy who has been baptized. Some of our brethren say, oh, she can't teach them anymore. You can't have their voice if they're not a man. There's the distinction the Bible makes, not salvation status. All right, notice then, men are, and look how the Bible works in itself, and it's so self-evident, though it's not explicitly stated. He's not talking about just praying. Women can pray everywhere. A woman can be praying right now. She's authorized to do that. This is talking about leading in prayer. And there are no restrictions on the male in terms of leading prayer. Anywhere. I'm talking about in terms of location. Of course, the implication there is that there might be restrictions on women. All right, let's run through the text. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over. You know, the old King James as much good as it's done. And I wouldn't question that one bit. Um, nevertheless, misled a lot of people on this passage by inserting the word usurp. Yes. And many of our own brethren said, well, as long as the men acquiesce and it's okay with them for a woman to get up and lead in the worship, then that's okay. Because she's not usurping their authority. Well, that's just a false concept. Often tail simply needs to exercise authority, have authority. The idea of usurp is not there. Uh, the word in the original language here, or, has the grammatical force of nor in any other way. So teaching is one way 
in certain settings, in certain teachings, that a woman could exercise authority over a man, but there are other ways in which she could do that, and those would be included uh, as well. But he's speaking, of course, in the context of the church. The word here rendered silence is not the normal word that you would expect for total silence, absence of sound or speech. It's a broader term, hesukia, uh, which refers to kind of a, you know, a, a submissive, quiet spirit is the idea. If you go over to 1 Corinthians 14 and find the normal word for speaking 24 times, clearly talking about sound, making sound, and then <clears throat> together with the word not, where it's applied to the woman, she is not to speak. That's not talking about you know, a quiet spirit. That means here's, here's circumstances under which she is not to speak. Notice Ephesians 5 says women are to speak in the assembly through song, through singing. But in this context, it's talking about taking a position in the assembly where you are addressing the group. That's the speaking that's being referred to. In chapter 14, another Greek word, sigao, is a word for silent. And there we are told specifically who is to remain silent in the public worship assembly. Uh, he says, a tongue speaker, though that tongue speaker has been given a miraculous gift by God to exercise in the assembly, he, or she, he is not to speak if there is no interpreter. Someone that doesn't have the inspired gift to interpret what is being said. So stay silent. Keep your mouth closed. Don't speak. Certain prophets, especially if they're talking over each other, then one of them is to remain silent while the other one speaks. And then just kind of a blanket statement that uh, in this worship public setting, uh, the women are to remain silent. Interesting, though, how many of you remember Jack Lewis, a great brotherhood scholar, studied under the party graduate school, he argued that the word silence here, though, can be understood to mean absence of sound. He wrote an article in the Gospel Advocate, which I haven't dug out uh, to try to uh, go back and refresh my memory on that. But there it is if you want to do that. Now, here's where we really get down, I think, to the astounding features of God's mind, God's thinking, because he gives a reason for this. Okay, He's clearly laid out some restrictions, different, different roles for the male and the female based on his gender. And he gives us the reason, the creation of Adam. And he emphasizes the word first, but we know that that's how that went down. God created the man out of the dust of the ground. By the way, ladies, um, men were made out of dirt. Women were not. Okay? You say, well, you know, so what? So what that he was created first? What does that matter? Um, well, because God could have created the woman first, or he could have created male and female simultaneous. But he didn't do that. Is that just happenstance? No. Paul says the reason why there's this distinction in gender roles in the church is because God originally created human beings with these gender roles, these gender distinctions in mind. This goes back to creation. This goes back to the mind of God before creation. See, that takes this discussion out of the realm of culture and how people feel and what we think and how we think it ought to be. This is critical. This is like tampering with 
<laughs> the fact that in God's mind in eternity, he intended to see, save Christ. He intended to set up the church. How, how dare you go out and start a bunch of churches and call them denominations? Because that's tampering with God's intention in eternity. That's like setting up different ways to, to get forgiveness other than Christ. You can't do that. This is set up the way God wants it to be. All right, let's jump over to 1 Corinthians 11 for just a moment where gender roles have discussed uh, uh, Aaron and Denny did such an outstanding job of uh, expounding this text, and I, I don't think I'll be getting into anything that they talked about. I'm simply calling attention to the fact that when uh, Paul is speaking to Timothy and, and the Ephesian church wanted to talk about gender roles, he says, let's go back to creation. Let's go back to the beginning. You know, just like Jesus in Matthew 19 there where, you know, we, we need our question about divorce answered. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. Let's see how God set it up right off out of the chute when he created the first human beings. Well, notice the repetitious use of head, the uh, feminist. And, you know, the evangelical, the more conservative element in denominations, they have a feminist movement that's been going on now for 30 or 40 years. And so they try to tamper with this word. But you go back and look at the linguistic background, and it's talking about superior rank. It's talking about the exercise of authority. Mm -hmm. um, we're talking about the positioning of a person. We're not talking about anything else about the person, that person's worth, talent, ability, value. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the um, positioning of the exercising of one's authority. Well, notice, man is not, uh, the Greek preposition is ek, out of. So the woman was literally taken out of. That's literal. But the man was not. Okay, again, so what? Well, because when God created the man first and then created the woman out of the man, he intended to communicate to everybody that something's going on here in terms of our respective roles, responsibilities in the grand scheme of things. Nor was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. If you go back to uh, Genesis, twice we are informed that God said to uh, Adam, and this is something that uh, needs to be said to men today, but it's not good for you to be alone. You need serious help. <laughs> I mean, I believe that's exactly what God is. He created the man to be what the man was created to be. But he, was, he never created the man to be alone and to be on his own to kind of sort through life. He may want the man to take the lead in the home, but he put the woman there. You know, the Hebrew here, the fit, suitable. The King James, Joe King James has two words, help, meet. In the original, it's uh, uh, an associate, a counterpart, uh, an assistant that is fit, suitable. In other words, literally designed by God to be able to fulfill that role, that role for this man who's in desperate need of him. That's what's going on. And so, but notice what Paul's saying here. The man was not made for the woman. Think about that. Does he need the woman? Absolutely. But he was not originally, does God expect him to interact and relate to his wife in such a way that he's he's gentle with her and he's helping her? And he, oh yeah, all of that's true. But the fact of the matter is he was not made for her. 
but she was made for him. Now that, that speaks volumes. And there, there should be no reason for a woman to feel like, well, then that makes me second class citizen of all. No, it does not. Because we're all made in God's image and made for very specific purposes and roles. I, I don't feel one, uh, one bit uh, secondary to say an elder who the Bible teaches I to hold in high regard and respect that, that man's authority and submit to him as a father. And so all of that's true. That doesn't make me in any way less. At least God would not want me to see it that way. <clears throat> For as man came ek, out of the man, even so, notice how God kind of anticipates male uh, pride. Don't think, buddy, that just because she was made out of you, because you, every man since Adam, have come deop through a woman. Why would you say that? Why is Paul saying that? He's emphasizing to us. We're not dealing here with who's superior or anything like that. And men have no reason to consider themselves <clears throat> superior to a woman under no circumstances. That's not what's under discussion in Scripture. <clears throat> well, then when you proceed in 1 Timothy 2, so notice that's creation. I mean, he takes you right back to creation. By the way, somebody might say, well, that's why, uh, you know, on the veil thing that Penny uh, was talking about last night, um, how does that fit into chapter 11 because he brings up creation, not culture. Well, he brings up creation because a cultural custom in that cultural setting reinforces the biblical concept. To me, a good parallel to this would be if a Christian woman moves to an Islamic country. Now, unless the Muslims just cut her slack because they realize she's a dumb American or something like that, she needs to not do anything that would communicate to that population that she rejects anything that the Bible teaches she's not to reject. So if to them a woman covering herself means that she's being submissive in a, in a subordinate role as a man, as a female and so forth, then shall I conform to that culture, custom in that country? See, we Americans, we go around the world, we pretty much have the attitude, of course, not here, here in Valley. I know that y'all stress, you know, mission strategy. We just kind of go around and make everybody conform to what we think. You know? And uh, you remember Maxie Moore? We were in South Africa once, and uh, uh, there was a, a wedding of Christians, but they were of Indian descent. And uh, they had a little bowl beside your plate that uh, was for the purpose of washing you know, your fingers. And uh, he came in just a little bit late, sat down, started eating that curry and sweat and started popping up all over his face and I could, I could see a forlorn glare in his eyes. He grabbed that bowl. <laughs> and of course they're all double That's how we are. We just stumble through other cultures and customs. Well, <clears throat> notice then that whenever the, the roles were tampered with there at the beginning, Disaster results. There's the point. Well, how did it result on that occasion? Well, the woman was led into transgression. You know, we tend to focus on this idea of deceived, and that is, that's not emphasized at all. That's not even, you know, you, you go down that road, you're going to think, oh, see, that shows that she was fooled and he wasn't. Women are more gullible, more susceptible to deceive. That, that's simply not true. 
I know the Bible's not saying that because it's not true. Who is it that's usually smart enough to deceive a man? <laughs> I mean, all through Bible history. You do know that women typically score higher on IQ tests, don't you? That's pretty much a standard feature. Just like Asians typically do, compared to other racial groupings. So you could easily argue that, generally speaking, that women are intellectually superior to men. Another reason why men need it. No, he's simply saying that when they tampered with that role reversal, then sin was introduced into the world. And it's really, by the way, it's really not a matter of, well, she sinned first. I don't believe that's how God looks at it, because when you go to 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5 and put those two passages together, sin entered the world. Who had it? By relinquishing to, there's the prior sin, he failed to perform his manly responsibility to be the leader and guide of his own. Why wasn't he protecting her? That's, that has to be part of what it means to be the head of a wife. To protect her, to provide her with security. Did, did he do that for Eve? You know, the text is clear as to where he was. You don't have to wonder. It's not like he was out fishing or something while she was being subverted by Satan. Chapter 3 indicates in both Hebrew and Greek, he was right there with her. But he was listening to this conversation that she had with, with the Savior. And instead of intervening and saying, dear, don't, don't listen to this guy. We need to do what God tells us to do. Come on, come with me. Whatever he needed to do to protect her, he didn't do it. And so when she turns around and involves him, he goes right along. And then you remember how God approaches the situation. He didn't go to the woman first. He goes to the man. What are you doing? Why, why did you let this happen? Is, is in essence, and you remember what he did? What men usually do? Well, no, I want it. Thank you. He said, and you gave it to me. I'm going to wonder what a bolt of lightning right there. <laughs> men are responsible, and men have in many ways, we, we have dropped our responsibilities. So the only point he's making is that, look, look what happened when the roles were not maintained by the individuals involved. Sin, that actually provided the occasion for sin uh, to enter into the world. Now look at verse 16 of chapter 3. Growing up in the Lord's church, you know, hearing these things taught and, and reading them and everything, I really didn't know what this meant. I thought it maybe had something to do with, uh, you know, in what way would a, a woman's desire be for her husband? Uh, would that be sexual? And I grew old enough to realize, no, that's not only the case. It's the men that seem to be that more than the women. Well, is it, uh, you know, some sort of attraction or something? What's going on there? And someone pointed me to uh, the interchange that uh, Cain had with Satan in the very next chapter. And if you take these two verses, 3.16 and 4.7, lay them side by side. I did this, you know, in the original language to make sure that that I'm not missing something here. These are very, very grammatically parallel to each other. Okay, look at them. Eve, your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And you know, conjunctions in both languages can, can, can be 
adversative, that is, but kind of contrast. You know, I see that in Matthew 19, um, where Jesus said, you know, Moses said this, but I say there's a contrast there. Not and, a lot of translations have and. Not a wrong translation, but it doesn't help the English reader to, to get the contrast. Then uh, God says to Cain, uh, its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Okay, let's lay these down side by side and look at them. So God says to Cain, sin, you know, you've given in on this thing and by not offering the right sacrifice. So sin's after you. Remember how uh, Jesus put it to Peter? Uh, Satan desires to sift you. He's after all of us. So sin is wanting to take control of your life. Okay? But don't let that happen. You need to stand up and be the person you need to be to take charge of your life and to offer the proper direction. Well, isn't that exactly what's going on here? God's telling her, now, Eve, you know, you launched out here on your own. You took this fruit. And you're going to continue to have a desire to jump out, jump out there and take the lead. But don't do that. Let your husband take the leadership role as he was designed to do. That's all this is. It's an admonition for her to be supportive and helpful of him and you know, a good Christian woman is a woman who's not jealous of her husband, but who wants her husband to be all that he can be because he needs the help. Um, you know, you see the design of God in women in gender. You know, like women are decorators. They decorate everything, including their males, their men and boys, right? And uh, you know what life would look like without that? We'll go back to the 1800s, the mountain men. Took a bath every six months, scraggly looking people. It took women going out west to tame the west. Do you realize that? You know, when the, after those, those mountain men did pretty good. They didn't fight along with each other. Uh, they uh, just, you know, did what they did. And then uh, the first wave of women out there were uh, more the, uh, you know, especially in the 1850s, the gold, gold drew a lot of uh, women of less women of ill repute really and uh, there's the old west you know prostitutes and fighting and gunslinging and all that stuff and then the male Lord brides began to come you know these were the upstanding women and I'm telling you not only did you have a lot of these prostitutes literally run out of town literally on rage you've heard that expression that was literally by who well the men it was the women and then you started having churches and schools and got statehood. I believe that that is to be placed on the shoulders of the women. And that's been the case throughout much of history. A woman will either bring a man down or, or contribute to his own wickedness, like Jezebel. Remember that statement that's made in Kings. She, you know, he was a wicked man, but she stirred him up. She prodded him to greater heights of wickedness than he would have attained to on his own. Women have that power. You want to talk about power? <laughs> Women have power. If you take a woman that's godly, that's encouraging a person to, uh, a man to do right, well, you're going to tame civilization and have advancement. And America has uh, advanced to a level far beyond uh, any civilization in all of human history. 
and no Islamic civilization will ever do that because they degrade them. They do not, see, there's proof that that's not inspired religion right there. They don't understand the difference in gender as God set it up in the role of women. You don't have to go any further than that to see that. There are many other flaws there, right there on the surface of that. I believe that's what's going on in comparing these two verses, and therefore that's what's going on in chapter 3. I mentioned that women are very intelligent, women are talented. You know, this isn't a matter of who could lead singing better. No, a lot of women are fantastic musicians and singers and can lead. Uh, and public speakers, too, absolutely. But that's not limited to a gender. That doesn't have anything to do with gender. There's everybody, all colors, all gender work. We all have talents and abilities. So that's not what's at stake here. And there is a natural desire, I believe, for women to give in to put to the man, and I believe that's good. You know, Proverbs talks about, uh, you know, if God gives you a, a good woman like that, that this is a blessing from God because she's got so much to contribute to you to make you what you need to be. And so... Isn't that interesting how God stresses that? That woman of chapter 31, uh, who, by the way, when we talk about gender roles, um, the uh, virtuous woman of chapter 31 was involved in business decisions. How many men would let their wives go purchase real estate? Well, I don't know that he gave any input, but she went into the transaction. We might need to go back and make sure that our understanding of the role of men, female, fits scripture, that there, there's a good one that we're going to look at. A man must have the wisdom, the savvy, the initiative, the fortitude to assimilate his wife's input graciously and guide his family spiritually. God wants him to step up to the plate and be what he needs to be and to do the job that he needs to do. And he desperately needs his wife to do that. And I've even seen, uh, you know, widowers uh, go, go back kind of into their pre, pre-marriage condition and they're, they're lost. They need help. When that woman dies. Have you noticed that just statistically men tend to die before women? Maybe that's part of what how God set it up. And women seem to be able to function much better on their own. That's interesting. Think through all of that. We're talking about the difference in gender as God created us. So we're not to kick against that or fight it. We need to seek to understand it and see how God really set this up so perfectly that we fit uh, the way we're intended to fit. Well, once again, you and I really need to stress to our contemporaries in and out of the church that this is not a matter of culture. You know, it's just not. This is creation. Now, that, that takes this out of the realm of where our society wants to put it. And uh, I realize this is so archaic from our country's perspective. If you went and talked with uh, all of the... Um, people in our society that are working overtime to dismantle the Christian worldview in our country. That's that's clearly what they're doing. That's what this is about. And uh, the uh, instigation of uh, racial tension, I don't even like that term, racial. What's that about? Since we're all humans, we're just talking about melanin and the skin. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Um, but all of that is again is just a, a smoke screen these people that are pushing this in our country a lot of our politicians they they've already stated they made it clear what they're going with this 
And it's not about skin color. It's about Marxism and socialism. No, it's about overthrowing the Christian roots of our country. Now, that's all this is. If we don't see that clearly, then we're going to be confused through this thicket of confusion that they've created in our country and not cut through it and see what this is about. I'm not uh, for defending the founders of our country as New Testament Christians. I don't believe they were. But I do believe that they stood up and said, look, this is not going to be a Buddhist country or Hindu country or a Muslim country. We believe in the one true God of the Bible. We'll let these people come to our shores. As long as they don't interfere with that, they will be perfectly free to live life and enjoy freedom as well. But the danger that they said, almost to a man, is that if they don't share our values, which come from the Bible, then how are they going to function here very well? And you know in our country, the stronger our country was in, in making clear to the world where we are in our values, the fewer of them wanted to come. This is why so many of the massive immigration um, movements were from Europeans. So we had a big potato blight in Ireland, a bunch of them came. We had the Italians maybe back at the turn of the century, uh, mostly Catholic, but still see under the Christian umbrella. But you didn't find large numbers of Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims coming here because they knew what they'd come to. You've got to go back and study what God said about immigration and the law of Moses. Is God racist? Did he not want But by the way, notice the reason why the Europeans came was not because they were white, but because they shared the American, the uh, Christian worldview. Go back and study this. But the founders invited people from other countries, but they really emphasized that they look for this country, for a republic to work, we've got to have the same language and the same religion. Because our values come out of the Christian value system. And you, that's essential for the perpetuation of the republic. If you tamper with that, then you're going to alter our civilization into what? What you came from. Mm -hmm. Is that what you want? Why are you running from your country? So why would you come here and reproduce that here? Well, because they don't know why this country is what it is and where it's been and how it's got here. They don't know. And now Americans can't even tell them. Because we don't know. Our own people know. And now we've reached a point where they're arguing that actually this entire country was rooted in, birthed in, and founded in racism. And I'm telling you, I've gone back and read what these men have said, and that's a bald-faced lie. <laughs> were there slave owners at the beginning? Of course they were. But a minority. A minority. That did not represent the flow of our country and our thinking at the time. That's right. So much needs to be said about that. But, and again, why would I stick up for that? Well, only because the more erosion we see of Christianity in our culture, the harder it's going to be for us to do our job as Christians. Um, you know, I'm prepared to do that. If it goes back to the Roman Empire, first century, and we have to go hide in caves, okay, whatever, the Lord will be with us. But he's blessed us. Who, who can deny that? They're even so brazen in the news that they're saying, oh, God had blessed this country. Man, have you looked at the countries of the world both now and then? This country has been blessed. Now, how do you explain that? Would the God of heaven bless a country that's not New Testament Christians, but who say we believe in the one God and we believe Christianity is the one true religion? Would God do that? Did he bless uh, a pagan king like Nebuchadnezzar? 
or Cyrus when he turned and said, okay, you're the one God. See, that's God. That doesn't mean all these people are going to go to heaven. But he can bless a nation and bring a nation up. And did Daniel say that Daniel 4.17? God does that. Well, most people with any sanity have realized that clearly God's hand was in the founding and perpetuation of this country. So don't you think that's worth Christians standing up and saying, hey, because if we move further away from God, God's going to withdraw his hand of blessing. He's done it many, many times before. And it's sure looking like we're headed that way soon. So that, in my opinion, would be one reason for us to go back and stress to people God's views on all that. All right, so here are the conclusion statements. This is a matter of creation. Clearly God intended for the male to lead. In, notice in the home of the church. You know, we have clearly in the, in the home, in Ephesians um, and other passages, Colossians. And then we have these passages, three, three passages, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy 2, that emphasize the context of the church. Now, when I was studying this a number of years ago, uh, by the way, I was invited to go to a Christian university. This would have been in 19. None of your business. <laughs> and... Uh, <clears throat> I was asked to present a paper on First Timothy 2, and they had a Greek professor from Adelaide Christian presenting a paper, and these were supposed to kind of disagree with each other. Mm -hmm. I don't know if any of that's available or not. Go hear what he said. <clears throat> and then I was invited to come to one of those Christian scholars' conferences that they used to hold, and this one's on the campus of ACU. Grubel showing this. And uh, <clears throat> Brother Warren, <clears throat> they invited him. And he just didn't feel like his health was permitting to do it, so he pushed me to do it. And and I talked to him about it. You know, I didn't want to go there and get my head cut off. And uh, he said, "Well, just remember this: thing. even if you can't work out all the little details, go back to the Bible. It's clear that God created male and female, and He clearly intended for the men to be the leader." So any ideology or philosophy or theology that starts taking people away from those foundational principles, then you know there's, there's a problem there somewhere. Let me give you uh, an example, <clears throat> um, if we have time in just a moment. So God wants women to respect and support their leadership in the home and the church. And, and we might say that he wants the men to stand up and be like men and do their job. And most men tend to not want to do that. We want to pass the buck and let our women uh, take the brunt of things. God wants women to focus on fulfilling extremely critical roles. Remember that old statement, I forgot the guy saying, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. But see, there's insight. From a person who embraced the Christian worldview, he understood women hold power. In fact, no country, no nation, no school, no church, will ever rise above its women. You know why our country is so permissive sexually? See, women are the guardians of that. Because back in the feminist movement, women burned their underclothes, if you're old enough to remember all that, and completely altered uh, femininity, and that included, by the way, the homosexual movement that's so now big in our country started right there. 
You start tampering with human sexuality while you're tampering with human gender, then look what you did. Here's the outcome we're living in right now. And so uh, it's up to the women, really, in many cases, to stand up and to uh, and put a stop to all this uh, feminist type activity that is unworthy, causing American civilization to unravel. Not that the men don't have a responsibility, I realize, but uh, it's when women gave, gave in, so to speak, that uh, men, then, now you can't hardly watch any of these television programs that have occurred in the last 20 or 30 years without seeing when marriage means nothing. People shacked up constantly, all these shows. <coughs> no, don't, that didn't just come out of the blue. Back in my childhood, women would not have tolerated that in our country, in our culture. I remember Playboy magazine came into existence in the 50s. See, part of that, there's always been pornography. But our society, Christian culture, they kept wraps on that and did everything they could to keep that undercover. And not let it become mainstream. Well, it's mainstream now. The way women dress and many of our society, especially if you go to Walmart, because that's about the only place I go, but I assume that's probably the exhibit A of the average American. It's sad. All right. If you go to our website, of course, again, this is going to look completely different when they launch it, but there's still those main eight categories at the top. And so if you go to America's Culture War, and then down on the sidebar, click on what, role of women, there's, I think there's more on there now than that. But there's a lot of this material that would be available to you uh, at our site. Well, I put out a little book uh, a few years ago on female leadership. It's uh, it's only just three, four dollars, I think, I can't remember. But you could access that at, at AP as well. Uh, do we have a minute or two? Um, 37 seconds. Uh, I was asked a question by a brother. And, uh, you know, this COVID thing and going to uh, Zooming and all that is, is doing the number on the church. And I think in the long run, we look back and we turn to and say, okay, there was Satan's attack on the church. Um, he was commenting on the fact that when they were meeting me in that assembly, See, that's the thing. The Bible's clearly envisioning us being together. This is not electronically. Otherwise, I could be a member of the Church of Christ in Cape Town, South Africa, and live in Alabama, and somebody in Rome could be a member of that congregation. Somebody in Russia could be a member of that congregation. Does that make sense to you? To be a member of a congregation, you've got to be with that group in the local setting. Anyways, uh, he was saying that in their Zooming, they started putting videos kind of preparatory to the sermon where men and women were talking about how they were coping with um, COVID and, and how things were going in their lives spiritually. So, you know, here are women addressing the church on a Sunday morning, you know, in an electronic setting. Well, now that they, they start the reassembling, they brought those in. And so there, here's the elders' response. Well, uh, you know, that, we do that before worship or after. Mm-hmm. Well, the New Testament clearly defines what worship is. Amen. When it starts and when it stops, right? Mm-hmm. And so our announcements have not been worship, but they've been done in the assembly of the church. Preparatory worship. 
Okay, so what else can you then do when the whole church is assembled? You know, if nothing else, since we know clearly what the Bible teaches about God not wanting the women to take the lead in the church, and see again, they're narrowing the definition of church from 1 Timothy 2. It's broader than just a sin. My point, though, is that even there are times where leadership is perceived, even if you want to try to argue that that's not really leading. Take, for example, waiting on the Lord's table. Some of our brethren have tried to slip in the role of women's uh, in, in worship. I say, well, you know, they're serving. Waiting on the Lord's table is serving. That's not leading. Well, elders are servants, aren't they? That doesn't mean they're not leading. How do you perceive the people that stand up in front of the assembly? In fact, we clearly indicate that the fellow that's leading the prayer, we say he's presiding at the Lord's table. That's an authority one. So are you going to try to argue that, but you know, maybe the women aren't. And after all, women sit on the, on the seat and pass it to the person next to them. What's the difference? Well, the difference is she's up in front of the church involving herself in a position that is integral to the congregation and there's no way to distinguish that or cause people to not think that it, in fact, if the Baptist walked into that city, oh, you ought to use a woman in your service now. They wouldn't make that little fine technical distinction. Why would anybody want to make that technical distinction? To get little? That's all. It's incremental. Again, I've lived long enough to look back. They say, no, 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 it's not. And then you see it happen. And we see it in culture, don't we? Same thing with homosexuality. When that first started appearing back in the 60s, it was real slick in television programs that kind of made fun of them. But see, they were getting it out in front of the parents to get comfortable with it, used to it, and then it's just incremental. That's not the strategy of wicked people. That's the strategy of Satan. That's how he operates, and people are falling for it. So my suggestion to you in answering a question we don't have any time about things like, um, what can a woman do that's going to want to do that? We're talking about the church. We need to exercise caution. Why? Because this concept of gender and role relationships came from the mind of God. Do you want to risk tampering with that? This isn't culture. This is God's view of the creative. Thank you. Thank you.